the sermon, now is the time to leave. Um, I said that because in the first service, there's not many people that know me. Too many of you know me, so I won't give you permission to leave. Um, Instead, I'm going to uh, talk to you this morning uh, about temptation and sin. Uh, When Mark asked me if I would preach, I was really excited to have another opportunity uh, to get up before the church and share um, some of my acquired knowledge with everyone. Um, I don't exactly know how many of you remember the last time that I preached here at church or how many of you enjoyed um, my sermon, but I thought I did a pretty good job, so uh, it's time for me to give it another go-round. My excitement diminished a little bit, though, uh, when I realized that I was going to be following up Mark's Sermon on the Mount series. Mark's a pretty excellent preacher to start with, um, and it's good that he's not here to hear me say that. Uh, and then he upped the ante even further by preaching on one of the most iconic passages in Scripture uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. So, in an effort to one-up him, uh, and because I think the subject matter could not be more relevant, I chose to talk about temptation and sin. Without a doubt, the nature of sin and the reason for temptation has been a confounding mystery throughout human history. It continues to be elusive while still causing controversy and division in the church, society, and families around the world. Our inclination as human beings to give in to temptation and fall into sin, as well as to judge others for doing the same, has set us up as our own worst enemy and the worst enemy of those around us. It is precisely because of our close relationship to sin that this message was difficult to write and may be difficult to hear. Sin, simply defined, is any deviation from God's will. This is a far cry from what, the, what society defines sin as, which is mortal injury to political correctness. As Christians, we think that we know what sin is, and so we should have an easy time taking care of it. The problem is that the line is sometimes hard to see and may actually differ from person to person. To deal with sin, Americans have developed uh, several different coping mechanisms, ranging from cutting it out at the root and removing it from their lives, all the way to giving in and indulging in sin wholeheartedly. Today I would like to spend some time discussing the nature of sin and the need to resist temptation, despite what society is telling us to do at every turn. In addition to holding your interest, I feel that this particular subject is perfect to discuss as a follow-up to the series on the the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in which Jesus challenged many of our preconceptions about what constitutes sin, as well as what we should do to root it out. First, I want to share about the popularity of sin. By this, I don't mean the frequency with which it's committed, although that is rather high, Instead, I mean the uncommonly broad focus that our society has on the idea of sin, to the point of celebrating it. Not only is the action of sinning celebrated in society, there are actually movies and television shows in which the whole premise um, of the movie is temptation and sin. Two examples that have informed this message are the movie Seven and the movie The Devil's Advocate. If you haven't ever seen them, don't waste your time. Um, because I'm going to sum them all up right here. In both of these films, sin takes center stage as the star, and the characters are wrapped up in a world that is ruled by giving in to temptation. Both also celebrate the ultimate failure of man to resist temptation and the ultimate futility in even trying to do so. It's really almost difficult to believe that movies and television are so open 
about their ultimate goal of the triumph of sin, because it's so contrary to what we're told in Scripture. We're told on multiple occasions that we are indeed in trouble if we act alone, but that through Christ anything is possible up to and including resisting sin's alluring temptation. I'm going to spoil a little bit the communion meditation, but in the last service, Garrett um, brought a scripture out of Colossians about how sin sin has lost its sting because of Christ's sacrifice. Christ um, has the ability to help us resist sin's temptation. We live in a society, though, that attempts to first ignore Christ altogether, tells us that we don't need Jesus in our life, and that hook makes sinning easier for us, and we must resist it above all else. In both movies, there's a specific focus on a series of sins known as the seven deadly sins. There's a little bit of controversy over what exactly those sins are, um, as they've been around in the church for hundreds of years, and they're only loosely based um, on scriptures in Proverbs 6 and Galatians 5. However, the generally agreed-upon list that I found in my research um, includes lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. While the Bible never specifically lists these sins as any more heinous than any other sin, it does set them apart as deadly sins or capital vices. And I think the reason for this is obvious. Um, They are root sins. Giving into one of these naturally leads to giving into more. In college, Um, Some friends and I did a study uh, on what a lot of people consider to be one of the most harmful sins, which is pride. Pride is so dangerous because it overinflates your sense of self. And we like to believe that we're more important than we actually are anyway. But this aids Satan in his goal of removing Christ as our support system by convincing us that we only need to rely on ourselves. In the movie The Devil's Advocate, the devil character um, is quoted many times throughout the movie as saying that pride, or vanity, is definitely his favorite sin. The list was developed in the early um, third century church, the list of these sins, and it was developed because the church was battling with a very crippling problem of sin back in their day. And they came up with this list of capital vices in order to try and help people realize that these things need to be avoided above all else. And you might think, well, the third century church was a long time ago. Um, But when you hear this list today, don't you think these are struggles that we still face? Think about it. All Satan has to do is get us to give up God's help, and then he can take over. On the surface, this sounds ridiculous. No self-respecting Christian um, would ever say that they didn't need God's help in their life. However, think about your life, and honestly imagine all the areas that you have decided that God has no business being a part of. You can blame society or the law or shyness or a million other things, but the fact remains that we have told God to stay out of our work, to stay out of our recreation and our intimate relationships and our parenting styles and a dozen other areas. The reason we've done this is quite simple, because we tell ourselves, well, you don't need to worry, God, I can handle it. We overimagine what we are capable of on our own, and we allowed pride and vanity to get the better of us. 
this seemingly small sin of believing that we can handle situations on our own then opens up a gateway which allows other sins to enter our lives. Our temptation to rely on ourselves, to resist temptation, actually makes it easier for us to be tempted into sinning. Uh, As for the other seven on the list, lust is telling God that our sexual life is none of his business. And so we push him out, even though he is the one who created our sexuality in the first place and developed a clear plan for how we should go about practicing it. Once we remove him from the conversation, though, we can demonize the virtue of sex and place all of our focus on the pleasure. Gluttony and greed apply the same basic principle to our diets and our finances. We're able to rationalize God's removal from these areas by saying, "Eh, God doesn't really care what we eat or how we spend our money. And we forget that our body is his temple And we have no earthly possessions except for what God has lent us during our time here on this planet. You may sense a theme. If you don't, then I'm doing a poor job of getting it across, or you're not paying attention. In case you missed it, here it is. Sin creeps in when we give in to the temptation to push God out. We've been told for a long time that sin causes us to separate ourselves from God. And that's true, but I would, be, I would state that I believe it's even more true that when we separate ourselves from God, we sin. And our society has been progressively pushing ourselves further and further away from God, constantly keeping Him at arm's length. And as we push God away, we fall in to sin. This vicious circle goes around and around. And the question then becomes, how do we prevent the circle from forming in the first place? Or, if, like me, you're caught in the middle of the circle, how do we get out of it once it's formed around us? The answer is really easy, which I'm sure you're glad to hear. Um, However, the practice is much more difficult. Quite simply put, we have to rely more heavily on God and remove ourselves from tempting situations. There you go. That's the answer. Now go do it. Yeah, if it was easy as simply saying it, then we wouldn't have the issues that we do as a society. I'm honestly not certain which part of that is more difficult for us, relying on God or avoiding tempting situations. On the one side, we have a very hard time as human beings trusting anyone, um, especially God, uh, with our difficulties. For some reason, the idea of telling God our sins, much less telling an accountability partner, is absolutely terrifying. For some of our, on the other side, we're constantly bathed by society in the glorious joy of all things sinful. And we have a difficult time escaping society's grip on our lives. As Mark covered when discussing the Sermon on the Mount, even Jesus felt the need to help adjust the mindset of people in his day um, by, by telling them how much sin and temptation had permeated their lives. He said, not just murder is sin, but just thinking about hatred. Not just adultery, but looking lustfully. We need to take a moment and reevaluate the way in which we live. I know that I am guilty of letting images, thoughts, and words into my mind from the outside world that Jesus would absolutely have rebuked. And I don't do so in the security and safety and privacy of my own home with curtains drawn. But instead, 
I do it on the radio in my car, at the movie theater, or in conversations with friends and colleagues. Possibly the most terrifying part about sin is that we have become comfortable with a certain amount of what we consider to be appropriate or politically correct sin in our lives each and every day. Many Christians accept foul language, violence, adultery, homosexuality, gossip, and the like in their lives as just being part of the way things are, without a thought about how their acceptance of each of these helps to tear down the wall between them and absolute depravity. Sin is, after all, a slippery slope, and one that we can easily become desensitized to. This is where things got a little hazy in first service. Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy magazine, just announced last month that Playboy will no longer be featuring nude women in their magazines. Initially, this seems like a win for modesty in Christianity, until you find out the reason why. The reason was that American subscribers have become inundated by and desensitized to easily accessible pornographic material, to the point that they no longer find simple naked pictures of women appealing. These subscribers want something extremely more graphic, and even Playboy isn't willing to give it to them. How long before the violence and sexual depravity celebrated on TV, in movies, and through video games finds its way into actual practice in our lives? Where do we draw the line? If no one called us out on it, would we draw a line at all? Jesus was pretty clear when he called out those listening to his sermon when he said that the line should be drawn in thought. If you don't allow sin to trickle into your thought, or you at least attack it there, it won't be allowed to become action in your life. This is why he said not just murder, but hatred, not just adultery, but lust. You attack it in your thought. Last week, Mark talked to us about the end of the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that the path to hell is wide and many will enter through it. And that's hard to hear. But if the majority of us, even Christians, are headed toward destruction through that wide path, then we're clearly doing something wrong. What is the wrong that we're doing? Well, we're accepting sin as the new normal in our lives. The world that we live in is sinful. We accept the world that we live in, and we accept the sin along with it. Now, by this, I mean the sin in our own individual lives. Let me take a moment to advise you that another person's sin is largely none of your business, unless they are looking for help getting out of it. I know that many of you believe that as a Christian, it is your duty to call people out for their sin and rebuke them. But let me assure you that yelling at young people and non-Christians about all the ways that they're sinning is the fastest way to ensure that they never develop a relationship with Christ, who is the only person who can actually change their heart. I would hate for this message to become an excuse for anyone to judge or criticize someone else for sinning, especially when we have plenty of sin in our own lives to attack. Too often, Christians attack the sin in others and turn a blind eye to the sin in themselves. It is that sin, the sin in ourselves, that we must learn to recognize and remove. We must resist the cultural mindset that God is whoever we want him to be, and that that we will make it to heaven as long as we believe that we will make it to heaven. 
we must arrive at the realization that believing in God means believing that what he said was true. And when he tells us not to sin, he means it. There are some reasons behind the restrictions that God places on us, and it's not just because God is a major buzzkill. In my classroom, I'm a high school teacher, those of you who don't know, and in my classroom I have a rule. I have lots of rules, actually. Um, But one of them I feel like is the rule that I probably have to repeat more than any other rule, and the students sitting over here that are in my classroom probably know that it is my rule against tipping in your chair. It's a silly rule, but I'm a staunch believer of four on the floor, all right? All four legs making contact with the floor. And on the first day of class, I go over this rule, and the students complain, and they accuse me of trying to make my classroom the unhappiest place on earth. And some days, I suppose it may be um, from their perspective. They believe that the rule is unjust and that they should be allowed to tip in their chair if they want to tip in their chair because, quite honestly, it's fun to tip in your chair. And from their perspective, they're not going to tip over. They know what they're doing. Now, from my perspective, I have simply seen too many students tip too far and fall too far backward, and they cannot recover, and they end up hitting their head on the floor. This is a small comparison to God's law and the result of disobeying it. He knows the reason for the rule, even if you don't. And when you begin to break it, it may seem like fun. But that fun can go too far and result in damage to yourself and to others. God created rules for a reason, and he expects us to obey. We get very wrapped up in trying to figure out how far can I go without actually sinning. That sometimes we're already in the midst of sin and don't even realize it. The mantra of look but don't touch, touch but don't taste, Taste, but don't tell, has permeated our subconscious and become the way that society exists. Based on Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe he would tell us, don't even look if it would cause you to sin. Still, it's difficult. Last week on the news, I saw the results of a recent faith study, which found that there has been a 7% drop in the number of people who regularly attend church services and read their scriptural book. Over the last year, a 7% drop in people who attend church and read the Bible. However, at the same time, there was a 7% increase in the number of people who feel more spiritual. How is this possible? Well, when people are making their lifestyle their God, then whenever they indulge in that lifestyle they feel spiritual. And we as Christians are guilty as anybody else of doing this. We remove God and we make our lifestyle our spiritualness. And when we indulge and we give in to that lifestyle, we feel spiritual because we are closer to what we consider our God and slowly that God is being seen as sin. We as Christians must break this cycle and stop falling for Satan's tempting tricks and diving headlong into sin. This difficult task of avoiding sin is accomplished by prayer and petition, as well as by avoiding those things that tempt us. We must learn to more completely rely on God's presence and intervention in our lives. We must listen to the Holy Spirit when he sends us guilt for sinning, and we must go to God in prayer 
when we feel weak. Going to him only when things have gotten out of hand is not an effective practice. You saw in the video at the start, um, Satan was tempted by, or Satan, Christ was tempted by Satan three times, and three times Jesus won. He's the only person who has that kind of record. I can't and I won't speak um, to the sin in your life, but I will speak to the sin in mine. I lose more than I win, and I lose all the time when I rely on myself alone. We have to turn to God. He knows we are tempted because he was tempted. He also is the only one with the strength to resist that temptation on our behalf. However, he will not force his will upon us, and we must choose to turn to him in our time of need. It's not easy, but as we slowly wake up to the deep depravity of our situation, hopefully we will find ourselves in a right relationship with the God who strengthens us. Will you all pray with me? Father, we are weak. We are human, and you know our situation and our circumstance. You know how difficult it is for us to resist temptation on our own. Lord, we ask that you would extend to us your strength, that you would give us um, your power in resisting that which Satan throws so willingly at us. Father, I ask that you would um, increase our awareness of the temptation that surrounds us each and every day and help us to avoid falling into those temptations and those sins. Lord, we thank you so much for sending your son to die on a cross so that death would have no power over us, so that sin would have no power over us, so that he can crush it um, with your mighty, mighty hand. Lord, it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on the cross Accused in absence of wrong Sin washed away in your blood Too much to make sense of it all I know that your love breaks my fall Scandal of grace died in my place so my soul
sing this out.